This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we need to talk about in this episode include... AI art at your game table. Katarzyna Kuzinska and Marcin Kuzinski. Character sympathy in horror. And New York Stone Energy. Remember that Dinosaur 5e game we were talking about? Hmm, you mean the one from Atlas Games, uh, Plane something? It's Plane Gia, Robin. The Star Shaman Song of Plane Gia, to be exact. Oh yes, the prehistoric setting for 5e. Well, you can dive into Stone Age fantasy role-playing right now! Tell me more! The digital version of the core book has dropped, so you can order it now for immediate download from Atlas Games. That's awesome! Dare you say Dino-rific? I do dare say Dino-rific. There's the Plain Gia core book PDF, plus the heart-pounding adventure Lair of the Night Thing in PDF, and the custom-created soundtrack featuring 54 separate tracks called the Songs of the Stone Age. Rattling dice. A miniature, but one that's thumping. Doritos. No, nacho cheese Doritos. Peter Frampton coming alive. Peter Frampton coming alive photographic style. Peter Frampton coming alive photographic style blue. Ah! Anyway, Gaming Hut. Friendly confines thereof. Welcome once more to the Gaming Hut, where we are continuing our discussion of AI art, and we move from the business of gaming to the praxis of gaming. Namely, if you've got the AI art, how do you use it in your games? Is it a different way than you would just use Google image search in your games, which I assume most people do if they're playing a game that can be Google image searched, which by now I think is most of them. Even in my, you know, 13th age game, I could Google image search like, you know, a manticores and whatnot and have my choice of cool manticores to put in. So, Robin, have you been doing it? It mostly I think- predates my, my gaming break, which yeah, hopefully right. will end soon. Mm-hmm. But I think the difference between making the computer draw what you ask it to once you figure out which platform uh, does that best to your liking and makes the sense to you. And at this point, the one you can get the the beta for, should you need it. (laughs) The difference between just doing a Google image search is that there's a lot of things that you may have in your mind that are not Google searchable. Like, for example, you would like a portrait of a black man wearing 1890s finery uh, in Paris, and uh, he's, you know, holding a lamp. Well, you're not going to get anything when you do a Google search for that because uh, no such paintings existed. Right. But you can tell several of the programs to do that, and some of them will do a bang-up job, especially if you get good at it and learn how to manipulate the different things so that you can get things that are relatively specific in different categories, and what you can get it to do is kind of different. But, for example, the, the thing that is my new jam on this front is stable diffusion, which I think is is in its results, is head and shoulders above uh, certainly AI art machine. I think even more, it's even better than Dali for sure. And Dali has gotten less good as they've got more people on it. It's uh, <laughs> the, the little... Yeah, that, that's like the internet in microcosm. <laughs> it's, it's a Subway sandwiches of AI art. Uh, they got you really excited. And now it's like, oh, that's just a sort of a bloppy quick render. Uh, but the human face, particularly in stable diffusion and also in mid-journey, is a thing it does really well, and even expression. And even sometimes, uh, quite often, in fact, you know, I've gotten results that convey a strong emotion that is not necessarily even something that, you know, actual real meat artists uh, manage when they're first uh, starting out. And so the obvious first thing is you now have the capacity to create a portrait of every Game Master character, and you have the capacity to give every player character a selection of possible images. Now, this is going to vary according to a time period, you know, because the way that these work basically, and they're kind of different is, you know, how many images there are on Google image search for a given thing. So I imagine there are time periods that are more difficult to do. And, you know, there are all sorts of limitations to how this works, but a basic face of a person in period clothes of a particular era 
in the style of a particular area is shockingly easy to do. So I don't know if you've ever gotten to the point of being able to deliver an image of every single Game Master character that the uh, players encounter, plus having a stock of, you know, extras to be walk-ons whose purpose you haven't determined so that the players aren't like, oh, well, we don't have to worry about this person doesn't have the clue because he doesn't have a picture of them. It's never been easier to present that amount of detail about people. And that's, you know, has, I think, an enormous effect on play, especially if those pictures have an emotional resonance. Now, in terms of Stable Diffusion or the mid-journey, how good are they at pictures of known figures? So if you say, I want the Emperor Trajan, will it look like the Emperor Trajan, or will it just look like sort of a Romany guy's head? It will depend on how many images it can find of Trajan to uh, average together. So not having tried that, I, I think there's a lot of Trajan statues probably. No, there's you probably might be able a couple. To get him. Yep. And being able to get, you know, a relatively obscure 19th century figure, maybe not. Sarah Bernhardt, yep. He'll yep. do Sarah Bernhardt. Ask it to do a current celebrity dressed in any era. Yep. Mm-hmm. It'll give you images of, you know, people who have well-recognized faces uh, so good that you couldn't publish them because it would violate their image rights. Their image rights. So, so, so sorry, people wanting to publish your Renaissance Harry Styles game. Too late. Right. But if you, you know, said, you know, thin, redheaded Swain in the style of Botticelli, you know, it, it might uh, give you something that gives you the feeling of being Harry Styles without the actionability of publishing his picture. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you, you're just doing it for your friends, you know, no harm, no foul. Right, exactly. Suddenly shadow casting your Knights Black Agents game with Jurgen Prochnows and Stellan Skarsgårds and Max von Sydow's has never been easier. And also weirdly mysteriously, it's great at places because there are so many, you know, landscape images and photos of places. And again, it depends on how much, but you know, if you search online for, you know, the early department store in 1890s Paris, there'll be a few interior pictures. But if you ask it to draw one, it'll do a quite credible version that is not doesn't match any given shot that you can find on Google Image Search. But nonetheless, makes sense, has correct perspective, seems to be historically accurate, or at least accurate enough for the purposes of tomfoolery. Right. It's, 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 it's like someone did a good seventies movie set in the Bon Marche. Yeah, exactly. Right. And works shockingly. And I think again, there's a danger of showing very specific pictures of places in that people lock into it and go, oh, well, I guess, you know, there's no sword on the wall cause I don't see one in the picture. Mm-hmm. And you have to be aware of that, I think. But the other side of that, of the, the emotional resonance of it, of the vividness of it, making it feel that you were there and picturing you're there looking at a lot of AI pictures of 1890s Paris is a lot different than just saying to your players who may not lack the reference points. It's not like there's a ton of Belle Epoque movies out there. There's a small handful of them. Mm-hmm. I think it does a lot to make you feel that this place that is going weird and horrific on you is real. Mm-hmm. When I was doing my games online during lockdown, I did find that the big advantage of that was utilization of images. And while I don't think that it made up for being able to, you know, see people's facial expressions, I liked being able to throw images up onto the screen and get a response. And I do a little bit of that still in Fall of Delta Green when we've all got Discord now, not Slack, open. And uh, I can throw an image up and say, this is what you're looking at. When they were interviewing uh, Roman Navarro before his tragic murder by the cult, I got to show a picture of Roman Navarro right before he died and they could see him and it was a uh, it was a poignant moment, right? In the um, supers game, if I want to, they're in Bandung, Indonesia now. Nobody knows what Bandung, Indonesia looks like. I don't know, but I was able to find pictures of it online and put it into the you know Pinterest mood board or, or throw it up on the phone and show it to the players. And I think the places actually are almost more important than characters in terms of being able to because with a character, you know you pretty much can imagine yourself talking to someone regardless. But if you're saying I'm in, you know, Bandung, Indonesia, I'm in, you know, uh, Alexandria under the Ptolemies, you kind of want an image of that to get your sensorium going, I think. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think you're totally right that people can imagine, you know, sleazy gambler and he's in his forties and you're in Indonesia. So of course he's Indonesian, whereas a picture of it could be just as vivid, but, the places are what really differentiate eras 
and geographical locations uh, even more so than um, what the people look like. Creatures are a bit of an issue because the further you go away from the bog standard creatures that'll show up on an internet search and even some of the a few that you that are available on the internet the ai is less likely to be able to figure out something with a weird anatomy and certainly something with a lot of descriptive factors it's going to throw a wrench right like for example one thing that none of the ones that i've worked with successfully do is change a skin tone so having you know gray skin or, you know, reptilian skin, they don't finally yet differentiate between where something is in the grammar of a sentence. So you're more likely to get a picture of somebody with a reptile mm-hmm. uh, than you are to get someone with, you know, monstery reptilian skin. And that's, uh, you can get around that, but it is very effortful. And the further away you are from something familiar, the harder it is to get. On the other hand, if you, you know, have the right keywords and, you know, a lot of the fun is just messing around with them and you're using the right starter image as you do uh, or as you can in Stable Diffusion, you can get some pretty amazing monsters that will make up for you on the spot mm-hmm. that look like no monsters in any manual that you may have on your shelf. But you can look, oh man, I bet that guy's special attack is that weird serrated arm he has or this guy is super creepy. He looks like he's, you know, at least challenge level eight or or what have you. So, it is almost better to have a dialogue with the AI art and say, uh, here's some parameters, make me some cool monsters, and, I'll, and then I'll figure out you what, know, what they're them. called and what they do. And uh, that's sort of a, a, a new version of the, the classic thing of GM prep is uh, you know, having the uh, AI art co-design some creatures with you. And that gets us to the sort of final thing is that depending on the platform you're using, it will have some different degree of logic that it tries to impose on the thing that you ask it to draw. So, for example, AI Art Machine, which gives you the gloopiest, smudgiest, most AI, least real art-looking images, you can put in a bunch of search terms and you'll get something really loopy that has a some sort of coherence to it thematically and draws you a scene or a mood or a, you know, a, a collage that is like nothing you can imagine, but it's like, Oh, what's going on in this image? And that can, you can grow a whole story hook out of that. Occasionally, uh, you will get something out of left field like that from stable diffusion, whereas uh, Dali will always give you something that it thinks makes sense. And so you might enjoy playing with one of the things that gives you less results because it will give you something surprising that will inspire a scene or perhaps even, you know, the premise of a scenario. And then you can go and Feed it to stable diffusion and see if stable diffusion can get it to look like more of a thing. Not terrible. Now, with uh, games like Everway that involve turning over a tarot card to resolve action, do you think that something like this would be, maybe in regular Everway, you're in the land of the tarot cards and you walk around and everything's fine, or the Everway cards, but if you go to the realm of the Everway fairies, suddenly you're in the land of, you know, AI art machine, and when the players do a thing, you put in a, either a random or a pre-coded entry and the, the gloopy image shows up and everyone's surprised and you have to sort of interpret it. I think that would be kind of fun as a, as a means of sparking group creativity at the table and saying, well, that glowing green blob is obviously a tree spirit, a dryad that's come out and we're going to talk to the dryad or whatever, right? Yeah. If you did, if you take, if, if you make a lot of images trying with a lot of different prompts, on anything, even, you know, stable diffusion, you're going to get a bunch that are like, well, I don't know what that is, but I'm going to save it. And so any of those things would be brilliant or even, you know, the more quotidian things that look real, even like, you know, places in Paris, all of these things, if you have some sort of randomizing factor would be great for any sort of story game where it's like, and the next thing that happens is this image mm-hmm. and it can be a weird device. It can be a person you go talk to. It can be a creature, but uh, you could absolutely generate your own Everway or equivalent decks until the cows come home uh, with the use of uh, AI art. And I'm sure there are people, you know, already looking for ways to incorporate the specifics of these images uh, into uh, the design of their card and, and board games. As an exercise, whether you follow through with it or not, you could, you know, pump in a number of your favorite prompts and go, okay, well, what what board game am I going to design based on mm. this? 
So this is an amazing tool, and I think it's one that gamers will latch onto hard because it is so useful in play that it, it can add so much sort of sense of dimension. And even, you know, you can go as far as like, well, this game has this color palette and you can enforce that color palette on your AI results either by telling it to use those colors or again, by giving it a sort of a gloopy, indecipherable background image that has the palette in it, but doesn't cause it to, you know, otherwise interpret anything in, in the image. And you can, you know, refine that over time. So you can kind of art direct your games and do sort of very primitive production design. And of course, you can discard the things that come up that don't, you know, if you say, well, there's, there's no green in this game, because, you know, green is the color of life. And this is a land of decay. So anywhere where you normally have uh, green, well, now we have brown. And of course, you'll still get a bunch of things that are called that are green, but you just don't use those ones. Right. Put them yeah. in a different form. Discard those. So you can almost begin to approach the level of being a production designer for the movie of your game and, uh, you know, go beyond the simple utility of, oh, here's this monster that you have to hit with a rock to, here's this monster, but he's in a brown landscape where there is no green. I guess the only sort of question there is, well, like everything else, the, you get good at the AI the more time you spend on it, and it becomes similar to how someone like Will Heidenmarch can uh, GM a game with amazing music cues, and I, knowing my limits, uh, as Clint Eastwood uh, reminds us, know that I could not do that because I don't have the bandwidth to concentrate on that, uh, on that aspect of it. This is something, it's a trained skill. It's a learned skill. The more you do it, the better you're going to get at it. At what point do you think it becomes a, a useful use of your time as a GM? Is there a, should you practice, you know, a, a, not the 10,000 hours or whatever nonsense Gladwell says, but where do you think, for example, if you started running right now, do you think you would be able to keep up the flow of the game in every other way while simultaneously, as you say, production designing the campaign in that way? I don't think you're designing the campaign while you're running the game, that you're preparing images ahead of time that fit with what you're doing. So it becomes part of GM prep. It becomes part of way. GM prep. So right. just like if you like making maps, guess what? Your game is going to have lots of maps. Mm -hmm. If you like vehicles, there's going to be lots of vehicles in your uh, prep. And guess what players you're going to be in those vehicles. So AI is startlingly fast mm -hmm. in some instances, but I don't think it's yet fast enough that you can, you know, oh no, I need a fishmonger and I didn't prepare one. Well, right. it's going to be way too distracting if you're running the game to also be going, oh, no, not, not this much fishmonger. Oh, his hand right. is weird. Oh, so no. for now, for now, Google image search is still going to help yeah, you out if there. If you're getting it on the fly, right, that's yeah. Google image search. And I think probably what will happen soon is that people will start to market image packs because they're so easy to generate. And it's even easier to, you know, they'll probably spend a few bucks and get here's 50 locations in Madrid in 1930 for your 1930 Madrid game. Mm -hmm. And the challenge there is to, because you didn't make them, of sorting through them and knowing what they are and, and being able to quickly identify which one you need for which purpose. And I think also we will maybe start to see scenarios where a bonus thing you can buy online is the, you know, the extra image pack that will uh, go with it because you can, you know, just generate so much stuff that uh, you might be in danger of having too much art in your published book. Uh, heaven forfend. Heaven forfend, indeed. Well, when we've uncovered a new and different danger, I think it is time to slowly back away from that danger out of this hut and into the comforting embrace of an ad. Track down foul sorcerers in a corrupt city. Clamber through underground ruins. Infiltrate the treasure vault of your decadent rival. Backstab your way to power and influence. In Swords of the Serpentine. The gumshoe game of swords and sorcery, investigation and intrigue. By Kevin Culp and Emily Dresner. And your mighty feud pals at Pelgrane Press. Strap on your blades for danger and forbidden knowledge. Tap into the corrupting source of sorcery for knowledge and power. Sharpen your tongue for the rigors of social combat. Prophesy secrets from the past, present, or future. Seek glory, justice, or the chance to live another day on the winding streets of Eversink. That's Swords of the Serpentine. Available now from Pelgrane Press. 
It's time once again for Ken and or Robin talk to someone else. And today it is I, Ken, talking to someone else and I'm talking to them at Gen Con. So if my voice sounds particularly weird or echoey or there are the sounds of joyful gamers in the outside hallway, that's why. Be envious and also be envious because I'm getting to talk to Kate and Martin Kuszynska. They are Polish game designers that I met at PeerCon and they're terrific. And I hope that we will all learn how terrific they are. I mean, I know, but I guess I could have kept that knowledge to myself. Anyway, Kate and Martin, welcome to the show. Welcome to America. Welcome to Gen Con. Welcome to Nap City, USA, Indianapolis. Thanks uh, a lot. <laughs> thank you. And it's lovely to be here. All of those places. <laughs> <laughs> Differential degrees of loveliness, certainly. <laughs> and the game that you guys have out that's now released, available everywhere, and you're pushing out support for it is Defiant. Right? That's right. Give us the elevator pitch. Why Why are people sad and lonely if they're not playing Defiant? And how can it make them uh, better gamers and better humans to play it? Okay, you said the expectation is pretty high. but um, uh, Okay, so Defiant is an urban fantasy game. It focuses on playing um, those uh, like uh, supernatural aristocratic characters that have their own followers, uh, courtiers, and they plot and they romance and flirt and... And uh, they're like, sorry, rebelling against the apocalypse. So like, there's an apocalypse going going on in the world, but there are those few uh, safe havens called domains, and and the defiant are there, standing defiant against the apocalypse and and, and uh, governing their domains. And does uh, does it take place in our Earth? Is it a high fantasy world? I mean, it's a world similar. It's it's. Pretty much our Earth, apart from the apocalypse. Right, there's, there's, there's an apocalypse yeah. and there's angels yeah. and whatnot rebelling against it. Exactly. Right. You get to play as angels or leviathans, pretty much dragons in human form, or infernos, like demonic creatures that came out from hell and uh, try to make a life here, uh, or Daiva, the, the old gods that have reawakened and uh, slowly regained their identities. Cool. Now, what's the breakdown of tasks are you both writing or one of you write the other one edits and revises is one of you the word and one of you the design how does that how does that break down well i think that our design process is mostly us arguing about everything uh, because we have yeah. different styles and like different things but i think it's for the better uh, and our games are better this way i totally agree with my wife on this yes <laughs> <laughs> i think that martin did most of the writing Oh, uh, but it was yeah, but it's fairly split, split in the middle. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we are also playing together a lot of the time and uh, designing in the process. So it's, you know, uh, half work, half pleasure <laughs> when we when we play. Uh, especially during COVID, it was difficult, you know, to, to find people to play. And playing online is just not our thing. Right. Uh, there's nothing wrong that, that there's anything wrong with playing online. It's just something that we're not used yeah. to. And it's kind of... I, I get, I get, I, I guess you need to get the hang of it, but we suddenly didn't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it, it's a it's a step, especially for people who've been playing face to face for years and years and have got all those habits. Uh, Poland, speaking of face to face play, has a large and growing role playing community uh, that I sort of encountered when I came out for CarcosaCon and hung out with the Black Monk Games uh, team. Do you guys see yourself as part of that? Polish design community? Or are you just sort of doing your own thing off in a corner? Well, um, do you have War of the Knife with Black Monk and now I've <laughs> accidentally stepped in it? What's <laughs> No. Uh, well, we used to publish games uh, in Poland. Uh, we published two games uh, a couple of years ago, but then we, we thought that, you know, reaching the wider audience, uh, it would be better for us to write in English. But we still we went to Percon as we were invited as guests. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we feel we are Part yeah, we definitely the, consider yeah. ourselves part of the Polish fandom. Uh, but yeah, but writing in English, uh, well, we write as, as best we can, but writing in English is totally different than writing in Polish. And, uh, we had to decide whether we want to pursue developing games in Polish or in English because we figured we can't do both at the same time. So actually we're writing in English and designing in English. And, uh, then, like, there's a Polish company that uh, gets our, the rights to publish our books and translate them to Polish. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad they were able to find someone who could do that. Um, <laughs> now, um, when I'm in Poland, I'm mostly looking at games that I already know that are American or uh, European games that have been translated into Polish. So I see, like, my games in Polish or Call of Cthulhu mm -hmm. in Polish. 
I don't know an awful lot about the domestic Polish native game design field. Um, do you guys feel like there is a national characteristic to Polish game design, or is it just a bunch of weird nerds like everywhere else in the world? <laughs> I think basically that that's an accurate description, but you know, it's mostly indie games, smaller games. Yeah, I mean, uh, back in the 90s, uh, Poland had a bit of a different uh, way to, to, with RPGs than most, I guess, Western countries. Because uh, there was no Dungeons and Dragons till like 1993, mm-hmm. and before Dungeons and Dragons, it was the second advanced Dungeons and Dragons, of course. Before it came out, uh, the first like large uh, system from from the West was uh, Warhammer. So actually, the the original po- Polish fandom mostly played Warhammer, and, and they still do. And they still do because you know if, if if a game takes this place, it, it's hard for anyone else to. It's wild to imagine what Poland in 1989 would have found to see in a game of distressing, immiserated dictatorship. But uh, <laughs> there you go. And then obviously Cthulhu, also very big in Poland. I know that definitely. Yeah. 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 And so Defiant though is. More of an international approach, you would say. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Now, uh, is there another game in your, you know, headlights you think you're going to tackle after, you know, you've uh, done some more supplements for Defiant? Is it just going to be Defiant until Defiant 2nd Edition or Defiant now with Ogres? Or what's the <laughs> what's the process for you guys as, as designers? Because I know that I, you know, I get, you know, really excited about a project and then I move on to the next one. I'm not in charge of nurturing a line and so it's sort of a different you know uh, appetite I guess What's, what do you guys think? Well we, we want to uh, put out uh, more defined supplements before publishing anything else but uh, we are pretty happy with our game mechanics and we think that we can uh, make new games using similar uh, rule set and uh, we wanted to make a fantasy game for, for, for a change but I think it's it's you know in the very early stages of yeah, development it's early to, to commit I mean uh, we come up with ideas for games all the time so I'm sure many games designers do it's like Kate Kate how about we do Pirates of the Caribbean but with Max, <laughs> and it's like for, I, I, I buy that. <laughs> yes, like for a day or two, it's like the only thing we talk about, and then suddenly we lose interest and it just goes away. So, so yeah, we do want to make a fantasy game, but it's far too early to 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 really tell you anything about it. Except like we were thinking about the title for like three days. We came with Shattered Crown, yeah. didn't we? Yeah, Shattered. Crown. Yeah. So if you ever see a Shattered Crown RPG, it's either us or someone else had the title before we even managed to sit <laughs> sit down and try to write it. So anyway, yeah, that's about it. Okay. Now, you guys are at Gen Con, and obviously, uh, when I was in Poland, everyone wanted to know, what do you think of Poland? And of course, I thought, Poland is great. So you don't have to say that, but what do you think of Gen Con? This is your first Gen Con. It's, I mean, PeerCon, I don't want anyone to feel bad, is more fun than Gen Con. But what do you think of Gen Con? Well, I think it's great. <laughs> <laughs> we, well, well we done. Like it well very much here. <laughs> yes. no, you, no. you can't see, but they're blinking in Morse code. I'll have someone translate it. <laughs> no, no, no. Jenkin is great, and we're having really uh, lots of fun here. It's a bit overwhelming, though. It's really uh, the exhibitors' hall is huge, and we get lost there all the time. <laughs> I mean, if I had to describe it, uh, well, uh, against Perkin. Then I'd say that it's but because people-wise it's about the same size, like sixty thousand. Yeah, circa. It's yeah. been it's been bigger in the past, but it, well, that's about what it is. Yeah. When you're when you're here on Saturday, you'll see what maximum Gen Con <laughs> is for this year. <laughs> so so like people-wise, I see pretty much the same amount of people, but with Pyrocon there are so many more cosplayers, so it's like yeah. more colorful and cheerful. But then again, when it comes to the exhibition halls. Wow, I mean the Gen Con <laughs> exhibition halls are just amazing, kind of intimidating too, especially once you get lost because you, you like you think that you, you it's the same booth uh, all over again, and it's like the fourth booth of the same company, and uh, and yeah. also people put so much effort into you know their booths with uh, all those uh, costumes and props and you know yeah it's amazing it's like it's like Christmas but it's like. <laughs> The, the amount of work that people put into the booths now is pretty much the same as the amount of work as the people on Pircon put into the, the cosplays and stuff. So right. It's like, uh, but the also, scales are shifted. Uh, there, there is a lot of different events all around Jankon, and it's really difficult to to find your way into this. So we just, oh, this is Jankon as well. What is it here? Yeah. Why is it a, a whole stadium like, full of 
Gen Con thing. It's Friday yeah. today. It's the second day on the Gen Con, and we're just walking down the aisle, just thinking, "Yeah, I think we got the hang of it. We know what happens." And then suddenly we're in the stadium, the the oil, <laughs> yeah. uh, the Lucas Oil Stadium. Lucas Oil Stadium, and it's also Gen Con. It's like this big arena. <laughs> suddenly we're clueless again. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, Gen Con became too big for me to keep track of it. About the same time it moved to Indianapolis, it, I barely had a handle on what it was like in Milwaukee. And then it moved to Indianapolis, and suddenly it's like, welcome to the Gen Con knitting program. I, I have no idea that that existed. You know, there's probably an anime film festival happening somewhere, and I just have no conception, uh, partly because, um, you know, I'm mostly out uh, on the floor, but also because it's too big. And everyone by now has their own personal Gen Con. Have you had a chance to play any games? Is that something that you're prioritizing? Or is it uh, just <laughs> making uh, uh, deals and friends uh, is the story here? It's difficult to make friends when everybody's wearing masks. Of course, yeah. I know that it's necessary, but, but you know, mm. it's difficult. Agree to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we are going to play games for sure, but maybe on Saturday. Yeah, probably. And for now, we just all right. Here we can play some some games, and here we can play another game. And, and then we're back at the hotel, and like the whole lobby is also a game playing area. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, what what kind of games got you into the hobby? Uh, did you start with Warhammer, like the rest of Poland? Did you come in in a second wave? Well, with D and D, what what's your path? Our paths are a bit different, though. Though we started playing together in ninety. Six, I want to say. So, we've and that's when our relationship started as well. Yeah, during, during a Warhammer session. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Documented evidence of someone getting a relationship through Warhammer. It's not impossible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If I may give a tip to guys out there, when you're like you're 15 or 16, and there's a girl sh who says she'll play the the, the the game, as long as her horse can have like. The charisma of hundred or something. You just say yes, okay. and then you wake up like twenty five years later. She's your wife. And it works, guys. It works. You just don't say it's against the rules, you know, because yeah, it's just the course. The charisma doesn't really matter. Uh, yeah, but but I started playing like uh, in uh, sixth grade, I believe. And the first session was like a, in a Polish game, but the second one, and this is a kind of a weird one, because the second one was actually Tunnels and Trolls. Wild, yeah, and I have no idea who the guy was. It was like we played one game of of uh, of a Polish um, like home homebrew system, and uh, then then there was this guy like I know a guy who knows real RPGs, and he brought like the Xerox copies of Tunnels and Trolls with handwritten uh, translations of uh, words to Polish, some some of the words to Polish, so that we could understand what we're playing. Uh, yeah, and I have no idea to this day who this guy was, what was what his deal was, because who had and trolls in Poland back then. Uh, anyway, so yeah. But after that, it was yeah, Warhammer, then uh, Shadowrun, Call of Cthulhu, of course. Uh, World of Darkness. And then came yeah. the World of Darkness, <laughs> yeah, for many years. And then we just pretty much started playing whatever we could get our hands on. And Kate, you were Warhammer? Was Warhammer or any other game of charismatic horses? <laughs> Warhammer was the first one. Actually, on my first session, uh, Martin was not the game master, but, you know, I was shooting a squirrel or something, and then I broke my leg, and my character was carried throughout all the session by other players, and I was like, nah, I'm not sure it's for that, me. That's Warhammer right there. <laughs> that's the yeah. first, uh, Warhammer first session. I, it still holds a special place in my heart but so 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 what what grabbed you was it uh, horses the horses <laughs> and also uh, elves elves and so that would be yeah, I, lo I love the Tolkien and you know Lord of the Rings and so, so that's good old D&D &D is, is what your onboard really was after <laughs> those Warhammer jerks nearly ruined it <laughs> no no D&D &D was uh, was not in Poland it wasn't around yeah, it, then, yeah so. so so it was Warhammer then alright and then World of Darkness it was you know sexy exactly RPG. <laughs> yes and, and remains a sexy RPG he said, having designed it. Um, well, anyway, as Kate knows and Martin knows, I could talk to you guys for hours. I did. Um, but yeah. sadly, there's no beer here in the room. So we're going to have to look for beer in a commercial. But thank you so much for coming. Tell people uh, where they can find Defiant and where they can find more about you guys. Okay, so yeah, at this point, the only place you can buy it is pretty much on Gencom, but it's supposed to change in about two or three weeks, so hopefully by the time this uh, gets out, you'll be able to buy it online on shop.gamemachinery.com. Yeah, Game Machinery is, is our uh, company, and GameMachinery.com is our website, so if you go there, you can, you know... Yeah, so go to GameMachinery.com, link will be in the show notes, 
Thank you so much again. Thank uh, you for having us. It, it's always great to see you guys. Hope we'll see each other many, many times at many, many more cons, Poland, America, and everywhere in between. Yeah. Thank you so much. And now that long-delayed commercial. The best of Ask the Geln is now available at Drive-Thru RPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive-thru. Keep this podcast's intelligence all natural by chipping in with such beloved Patreon backers as Chris McCarthy, Chuck Cooley, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel Gill, and Eric Jeppesen. Oh, I hear the rattling of chains. I hear the moaning of ghosts. I hear the snacking of werewolves. We must be in that most frightening of huts, the horror hut. And this time around, uh, Ken, I thought we would talk about an issue that always kind of vexes me a bit, and that's the question of protagonist likability in horror. Now, whether protagonists should be likable in fiction at all is still a strangely fraught question. Yep. In the current era, we've got a resurgence of the people who only want very, very virtuous, very sympathetic characters. Or that's what they say they want on Twitter. Yes, this is this is why I should not have wished for a return of the Victorian era on that monkey's paw. <laughs> yes, exactly. They were, you know, I don't know whether you got a nice piano out of it or whatever, but uh, but even so, we engage with characters differently in different uh, genres. And there's the question of if there's a uh, a main character in a in a work of horror, how much are we rooting for them, and how much are we rooting for the monsters who zap them? Because of course. Not only is there moralism in critique, but there's a huge streak of moralism in horror. Right. And uh, what happens to the uh, characters is kind of often seen as, if not a, a just punishment, also, you know, sort of an inevitable one. So are we enjoying having bad people uh, eaten by monsters? And is, is, that, is that the best use of the form? Or are we uh, practicing a form of cathartic tragedy where we uh, get to play with death by seeing people we relate to munched up by the uh, awful things in the genre. I think some of it depends on the medium. I think in a novel, it would be much harder to maintain interest if you didn't care about the protagonist. And you can certainly care about an anti-hero or a bad person because they have to be, either you can make them cool or you can give them an understandable motivation, even though they're jerks about how they go through with it. But I think the default and certainly the one that, you know, Stephen King has, you know, mastered is the sympathetic character, but who has flaws that you, the reader can feel a little superior to. And so you're not like so anxious as you read, because you genuinely love that character. Like no one would want to read a, a horror novel with uh, Lizzie Bennett as the protagonist because we love her too much. But, you know, a Stephen King character, he's like, oh, he's just like me, but he's alcoholic. Ah, oh, too bad. And then you have a, a you know, the sympathy and also a sort of that other dimension where, well, if he's eaten by a demon dog, I guess that's just because of his alcohol problems. That'll happen. Or, or why he's so feckless at fighting the vampire because he's managed to burn all of his social connections in the town through his bad behavior earlier. But we still sympathize with him because we're inside his head and we know that he likes the Boston Red Sox and Bruce Springsteen or whatever. So I feel like for a novel, there almost mechanically has to be that degree of sympathy assuming the novel has a central protagonist. And 
it I, I think you have to look long and far for a for a horror novel with an unsympathetic main character that succeeds. Even Lovecraft, who God bless him, does not write characters or novels. In his one novel, Charles Dexter Ward is the most sympathetic character because it's Lovecraft's sort of plaintive self-portrait, you know, of uh, his own desires turning evil and, and corrupt. And that's almost unique in Lovecraft, but I don't think it's a mistake that he does that in a novel, whereas in a short story, you can be not necessarily rooting for the monsters, but have a more, you know, clinical approach to the the, the character because you're saying, well... This is just going to happen if you're a professor of folklore. That, just, you know, I, I guess, uh, you right. don't really care about Will Marth and his angry letters back and forth to Vermont. You just want to see what the crab creatures are. Right. So the, the basic formula in which, for some reason, the protagonist deserves what happens to them doesn't work so well over an extended period of time because you want them to succumb to that curse that they violated, that warning they didn't obey. And if you want to do a longer piece that is you know, about a bunch of people who deserve it. Often the trick then is to be, you're the one along for the ride. You know, you're not the one who read the horrible book in the study that everybody told you not to read. You're their friend. Or, you know, you're the, that there's another person who you can sort of, you know, you might be kind of implicated, right? You should have been friends with that person. You maybe shouldn't be at that cabin. But we still, the, the more time we spend with you, as you suggest, the more uh, time we want you to survive. Whereas I think, the shorter things, we can sort of enjoy the gods meeting out punishment for hubris. But what does it say to us about the moral universe of horror? Because often the, the things in horror that we are led to, you know, go, well, he deserved it are like, well, he was advancing scientific knowledge or, mm. <laughs> you know, he was, that person had lustful thoughts. There's a punitive overlay of horror. It can be just as easily subversive as, uh, you know, reinforcing older values, but our look at what the protagonist is doing and whether they seem to deserve the fate that is either meted out to them or that they narrowly escape is also part of the, the moral universe that the horror writer creates. So that, you know, Lovecraft characters commit the hubris of believing that there is meaning and that they can triumph over meaning by discovering it. And then uh, they discover that the you fools, the universe is, is uh, not what you uh, thought. Is there a correlation between the degree of sympathy to a character and the nature of the moral universe that the story takes place in? I don't think so. I think that part of the job of horror is to present something that we fear is true. So we may say to ourselves, good people have good things happen to them. Bad people have bad things happen to them. That's why I'm not cheating on my taxes. But really, we know and we definitely fear that that's not true, that the universe is random, that if there is a moral judgment, it's handed out implacably. And to some extent, I mean, a cursory glance at Twitter will note that there is, in fact, a very strong, barely sublimated appetite for stern irrational, deadly moral judgment to be passed out. People want that. There is a a degree to which I don't know if it comes out of, you know, a millennia uh, being, you know, told by the priests at the top of the ziggurat what to do, or if it's just a natural quality of being a trooping animal. But, people like to see those other bad people punished. Yeah. But, but then part of the thing of horror is to experience this punishment and get catharsis from it without actually suffering. And, you know, obviously that's the same basic mechanic in tragedy is that, you know, you say, well, he had a tragic flaw. I don't know that I would have chained him to a mountain and had an eagle tear out his liver the whole rest of eternity. That seems harsh, but I get it. And I've had a, a response to that. Similarly, just being an alcoholic seems like a very... A uh, very low level of sin to be unleashing, you know, aliens or vampires or a de or a demon dog or whatever on you, and and that disproportionality a is part of the genre, and b I think is part of what we genuinely want and in some degree believe about the universe that you know if there's going to be a judgment, it had better be stern and implacable and irresistible because we're not satisfied with it. It's the, it's sort of the moral equivalent of King's, you know, 50 foot bug problem. You know, something smashes through the door and it's a 25 foot bug. And you say, well, at least it wasn't a 50 foot bug. You want to have something big 
uh, happen and big implies disproportion. And again, disproportion is worse. You know, going back to Burke, it's a classic part of horror. Right. And of course, there are plenty of horror stories, including, say, for example, Dracula, mm-hmm. in which conventionally heroic characters notice the appearance of evil in the world and fight it. And after some losses and setbacks and frights, overcome it. Yeah. And ritually uh, destroy the monster. And there's nothing unconventional about that morality. And uh, that has worked again and again in the idea that the horror protagonist has to be uh, somehow uh, tainted by the horror or uh, dragged down by it or destroyed is is belied by uh, countless horror narratives. Yeah. And again, though, we can parse Dracula as dealing with foreigners is wrong. That's our, our moral line that Harker has violated. Right. You shouldn't, shouldn't check out their real estate opportunities. Right. But I think that even in, you know, Stoker's time, the regular person reading Dracula would say, you know, maybe the the only person they'd say that deserved their fate would be Lucy for having her wild, unconventional beliefs about sex. But even then, she's basically conventional, right? She marries, you know, one guy or affiances herself to one yeah, you're guy. You're thinking, oh, yeah, she deserved it. No, That's- right. You're thinking, well, you know, that was a little close to the edge. And sure enough, she got eaten by a vampire. But it's not a it's not the situation where you have a character who's inviting this doom on themselves, even to the extent as happens in a noir, which is, you know, not disparate in terms of the implacable nature of the moral universe, despite a relatively minor sin. Um, I think you have, even in the most heroic narrative of horror, you by and large have someone who has invited this happening on them, even by doing something, you know, innocuous, like travel to Transylvania to sell a building in England or, you know, they uh, open a box. They, you know, are, are on tour in Sweden and uh, talk to a coffin. Well, right. But these are all things that we relate to as stuff that we could do. Right. Yeah. And these are relatively minor blemishes that you can expiate by putting down the thing that you inadvertently called up. Right. So I think we've uh, sort of got a matrix here where longer stories work better with conventionally sympathetic characters Stories in which the evil is vanquished rest quite comfortably with sympathetic characters that be odd, although it's been done to invert that trope and have the, you know, the vampire killers all being, you know, worse and nearly as bad as the the vampire. That's a thing people have played with, but it's, uh, I don't know how interesting that is. And the shorter things of of comeuppances and the bad people getting their own are are satisfying in their own way, but... uh, uh, don't need to be as long or as uh, morally complicated. Yeah, and in in film, you can alight a lot of it with you know attractive or interesting actors if they're just fun to watch. I feel like you don't, although you identify on some other primal level with them because they're up there on a giant screen. I feel like you can get away with worse behavior in a movie than you can in a novel, where I have to sit in your head. But if I am just looking up at the screen and Sarah Michelle Gellar is doing something, it's like, well, I'm sure it'll all work out. Look how, look how cute she is. And I'm not really as drawn into the, does she, does she not deserve, you know, to be killed by Ghostface? It's like, well, you know, Ghostface is here. He's going to kill some number of people, but the, who the final girl or survivor or decider is in any given sort of a multi-kill horror movie. I don't know that. We're as invested in it. Obviously, Halloween has been dinged retroactively for having the good girls survive and the bad girls be killed. But I don't think that that's necessary to horror. And I think that Carpenter wouldn't have needed that to make Halloween a great movie. Right. And things where the the contract is, here's a whole bunch of cool character actors. The monster is going to eat almost all of them. There may be sort of an implicit moral teaching in the order in which they get eaten. And certainly Mm -hmm. in the... Uh, qualities that the character who doesn't get eaten has and seldom will you find that that is, you know, just been randomly determined. It's always the character, the survivor is the one who has uh, whatever values uh, you as the uh, viewer are meant to uh, take away from it. Well, on that note, I think it's time for uh, us to escape before uh, we get multi-killed and see what waits for us on the other side of this perfectly safe commercial.
Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors all too real. Mosul in 2016, held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality. From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for a harrowing infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts. A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime, and backroom deals. New rituals. New tomes. And the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF. Or in glistening hardback. It's time once more to enter that most ambiguous hut, the one in the crossroads between the paranormal, the speculative, the merely crackpotish, the one where we don't quite know where the categories go, except we know there's UFOs in it because they are over at the table drinking their kombucha. Once again, there's the gray alien and the Nordic alien. We look out the window, there's the comforting screams of the alien big cat because we once more entered the elliptony hut. And Ken, this time around, we're beckoned inside by beloved backer Sean Richards, who uh, says... On Twitter, it was reported that we sometimes forget that stones gather energy, New York City Mayor Adams says about the City Hall building. Stones and metal gather energy. That energy is still here. So first of all, thank you to uh, Sean for once more underlining uh, my contention that uh, Eric Adams is definitely the number one wacky mayor that we have now. And uh, just, you know, shooting from the hip about crystals and vibrations, just as part of his Regular day, and I, I uh, really appreciate that. But, of course, Sean comes to us because he needs to know, know more, because I, I don't think uh, Mayor Adams went into that much detail, really, about the metaphysical effects of what he was talking about. It's a busy man. And so Sean asks, what kind of advantages does New York have from their stored energy, and how is it different from the energy of Chicago and Toronto? Well, we're nothing here on this show if not a geologist. Yeah. So uh, what, what lies underneath New York City, because I, I guess, first of all, he's talking about the building, City Hall. Right. And he's basically saying buildings are magic and cities are magic. We both agree with him there. Yeah, right. That's well known. And if you're going to argue New York City is more magic because it has more buildings uh, and more history, I think that's, uh, for North America anyway, probably New York City is the magicest of cities. Well, I mean, there are cities in the in North America that have more buildings and more history. Mexico City, I'm looking at you. But, uh, you know, north of the Rio Grande, sure, let's pretend that New York is the magic city. But that's not why we called or answered, is it? No, because if we're going to differentiate different levels of, of magic in different cities, well, they've all to different degrees. They've got metal. They've got stones. City halls. Yeah, city halls. But there must be specific stones under these three different cities that give them different mystic resonances. And uh, uh, Ken, I think you've been digging, so to speak, into the uh, the bedrock beneath New York City. Yeah. Um, New York City sits on what is called the Manhattan Prong. And when I say New York, I mean Manhattan, just like most people do. The geologist's uh, saying is that the Bronx is nice because it sits on nice, but Manhattan... That's G-N-E-I-S-S, nice. Yes, but Manhattan is the schist. Uh, the Manhattan prong is made of Manhattan schist, which is a mica schist, and uh, mica schist is the source of garnets. One of my favorite directors, Micah Schist. Micah Schist, yes, exactly. Can't wait for their new film. Where were we? Uh, Garnets, right. Uh, Micah Schist is one of the precursor formations for garnets in the same way that Feldspar produces pyrites. So, Robin, you, meanwhile, have pursued gem magic into its wooiest of corners. So, Garnets, that's a birthstone. It's January. That's what I know about garnets. Yeah, and they're like, they're mythic as suits New York. So, garnets in Greek mythology are the, the tears of Persephone, uh, who, of course, is the goddess of the, the return from, uh, from winter and, uh, her tears were pomegranate uh, seeds, uh, that, uh, uh, then fell into the earth and became, uh, garnets. So, obviously, the power of New York is the power of the changing seasons. Uh, it is a city. Uh, like the other ones we're going to discuss, which has uh, definitely changing seasons, but it's got that uh, energy to it. And also, it is a the light source 
on Noah's Ark uh, were garnets, apparently. I didn't know that. And I'm not sure how garnets work as a light source, but if you've got... Well, if you're, if you're, if you're building your boat on yeah. the instructions of a deity, I suppose that's something he could arrange for you. Possibly some sort of light socket. I don't know how that works. And also, you know, in another tradition, garnets grounds your root chakras. And we all know what that means. I don't know what that means. Do you know? It means that, you know, your root chakras have been grounded. Yeah. Electrically, I assume, given that there's there, there's light sources. Uh, Noah's Ark, of course, the place where all of the animals in the whole world come and they're all mushed together. Again, not unlike New York, where the whole world is sent uh, two by two or seven by seven in the case of clean animals into Manhattan to be mushed together. So that seems very apropos, I would say. Persephone, also the queen of the dead. I'm looking at you, uh, the Bronx, but there we are. So... Yeah, I think that maybe Persephone is sad because she has to live in Staten Island half the time. <laughs> maybe the the descent from the underworld takes her from all five boroughs. All five, but yeah, it's like when Inanna goes into the underworld, she goes through seven levels. Maybe Persephone goes through five, or maybe there's two secret boroughs that we don't even know about, the, the, the underboroughs of New York City. That seems like a whole different segment, really. Robin, why don't you tell us what lies beneath Toronto besides respectability? So Toronto is the site of geological struggle, of uh, the glaciers coming down and scraping everything weak and flimsy off the earth and leaving only the, the hardness of the Canadian shield, leaving scratches and scrapes and piles of moraines. And Toronto is, sits on limestone and shale. Shale soothes anxiety and brings calm. That is a uh, undoubtedly refers to the notorious uh, chill nature of Toronto, where we're so mm -hmm. calm, we don't want you to interrupt our calm by, like, talking to us or anything on the street. What's that crazy talk? Enhances creativity. I can attest to that. My uh, creativity is always stimulated by a lovely walk into Toronto, and I just thought it was the all of the vibrancy and variety of the neighborhood that I live in. But I guess I'm absorbing creativity up through the bottom of my feet coming up through the shale mm -hmm. and it's the rock of trying new things again i didn't know a rock had that policy but shale apparently does and uh toronto which will you know merge all sorts of uh different foods together from all our different communities let's let's try butter chicken poutine you know let's try pad thai tacos and some of those experiments are good and they succeed and they go on to be a thing let's try having a a restaurant called the Hungary Thai, which is half Thai, half Hungarian. Yeah, we'll try that. And uh, that spirit of trying is also reflected in, you know, the wide variety of different cultural festivals where people bring in new art and check it out. And our sort of spirit of, of questing certainly fits that. And then we have limestone. Limestone, as I don't think I need to tell anyone on this podcast, but are just catching you up to remind you, it broadens your point of view. That's the magical quality of limestone. Mm -hmm. And again, Toronto is very broad-minded and uh, wants everybody to come and, and live and be happy together and be mad that the city doesn't open the public washrooms uh, more than one season a year. But of course, the most magical thing about the geography of Toronto is uh, um, many cities have a high park. Uh, Toronto has a high park called High Park. And what you find in that city reflects its inner secret. In this case, it's buried. It's, it's erased magic because that was once the home of Wendigo Creek. Uh, now it's a nice little pond, Grenadier Pond, a little body of water in the middle of the park, in the middle of the city. But at one time, it was the place where the Wendigos stalked. So uh, when things get bad, uh, we know the Wendigos are secretly hiding under all of this broad viewpoint, under all of this uh, calm anti-anxiety chill and are waiting to burst forth if we, uh, you know, if our id really needs to go uh, crazy. So I think that's a, a great balance of different geological elements that we have. When, once the Penang paprikash runs out and uh, Toronto is thrown back into Arctic famine. Indeed, yes. Wendigo Creek will emerge. Chicago is also a glacier city. Its geology uh, is a big flat spot scraped down by glacier after glacier after glacier when it wasn't under a glacier. It was under a glacier lake. They call it Lake Chicago because, of course, they do. This is on and off during the Pleistocene. Below that, there is a layer of limestone from the Silurian era. So there's some broad-mindedness in Chicago as well. Certainly some, you know, we don't care what other people thinkness of it. But the rock formation underneath Chicago... Uh, underneath that limestone and then rising 
to what is called the Kankakee Arch uh, to the southwest of the city is a dollar stone, which is made primarily of dolomite. And uh, dolomite centers a room. Yeah, just like a good rug. Just like a good rug. It brings the room together. Again, Chicago, obviously, it's about coming together and uh, getting stuff done. It uh, helps uh, with any kind of regeneration, especially bones. And again, I think Chicago, the city of builders, uh, th- that's going to be this, the the rock that helps us you know, grow our bones and our skyscrapers. Uh, it staves off nightmares and PMS. I'm not sure that Chicago is getting all of the benefit from that, that it might. <laughs> well, think of how much worse it would be without all, all of the, the dollar stone. Uh, how much angrier we would all be uh, in the morning and once a month uh, were it not for all of our dollar stone. Um, and it, it also, like the uh, garnet, is a grounding effect. It, you know, pulls things together over and over and over on the on the witch talk and the uh, the little ads. I saw that, you know, if you want to um, bring everything together and, and ground it, you need a dolomite for that. Right. Because weirdly, most rocks are apparently nice and have different, yeah. mildly separate positive qualities. It's not like, this rock is a jerk. Well, we I remember we, we did cover the Moldavite, the, the, the yeah. rock that will uh, monkey's paw you to death. So... If you're in central Czechoslovakia, I guess you're, 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 you're me- or central Czechia, right. I guess you're messed up, but most of us are, are perfectly happy with our good rocks. Right. And of course, finally, uh, the main thing that Dolomite does for you is it makes you really good at playing the dozens and being a badass MRFer. Yep. And, and what more could be the spirit of Chicago than that? What more could be the, the, the town that gave you house and Kanye than, uh, Dolomite. So good for us. I think in a game, context worrying about what the central rock is under your city is maybe it's a quality that your city's leading a genius loci has or the deity of the city so uh, for example we've identified persephone as the deity of uh new york city we could find a shale god a god of fire maybe because shale of course contains natural gas uh, so maybe uh, secretly uh, Vulcan or Agni is the god of Toronto, even though Chicago is the one that has all the fires. And then Chicago's uh, Dolomite, the builder, um, maybe that's uh, Hephaestus, who's also got fire, but he's also building stuff. And I I feel like maybe that's the, uh, and the irony, of course, is Hephaestus can't grow his own bones because they're busted up. So this would be fun for a campaign where you're visiting a bunch of different cities and it's like a god of the week. Each time you have, mm-hmm. uh, there's some reason why you have to go between each city, hopefully not gathering a rod of seven parts from the different gods, but some reason to travel around. And, you know, now we're in the environs of Hephaestus and the rules of Hephaestus apply. And it's, it's a good place to have, you know, a gunfight. It's a bad place to get healed. And, uh, you know, you can be hopping from place to place to gain the different magical effects of all the, you know, gain the boons of the gods. Or you could be, you know, trying to diminish the power of the gods. You're trying to, you know, defeat Hephaestus when you uh, show up in uh, Chicago. Either one of those could be, I think, a fun approach. And it can set up, you know, conflicts where the the underlying god of Chicago is Hephaestus. But for whatever reason, we've got Ceres up on the top of the Board of Trade. The most exalted image in the city is that of Ceres. So are Ceres and Hephaestus, you know, are they partners? Are they rivals? Are they getting it on? Is there more to that story? And so if you, for example, look at uh, Birmingham, Alabama, they have the giant statue of Vulcan. But if you go deep underneath Birmingham, maybe their rock is a different kind of rock. Maybe it's granite. And so, you know, it's it's Jupiter or something that's down there, not um, Vulcan. And so you have, you, you don't just lay it down as one, as the only thing about the city. Obviously, New York City is, is you know, full of stuff besides Persephone or, or even Noah's animals. But it lays you down a, a sort of a base note uh, that you can riff the rest of the things on or, or imply them with. Maybe in the game you talked about your magical ambassadors trying to knit together a league of cities to do something magical to screw over the, you know, the hated British or somebody. And you have to build alliances in the same sort of way that in Aftermath in Yellow King, you have to play right. factions off against each other. And in this case, the factions aren't, you know... Well, I support a neutral tax policy there. Uh, we have to have representation for for Hephaestus. And uh, if, if we don't, then we're going to throw this whole thing over. And you have to work out right. magical uh, degrees of, of go along. Right. And, and as we know, if there's one thing that gods do, 
with player characters in exchange for favors. It's give them missions. Mm -hmm. You know, the underworld, it's infested uh, with these trilobite creatures. Go and bang on them and maybe I'll give you some garnets and uh, show you that I'm uh, on your team. And uh, that could be, uh, you know, a a fun, you know, F20 sort of overlay over urban fantasy that uh, I think could keep you going for uh, quite a while because, uh, you know, going down where the shale is, into the aforementioned burrow. I think these things uh, absolutely tie together. And once we've tied not only the room, but the podcast together, it's time for us to uh, flee. But I'm sure we'll be back next week with uh, more of the similar. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Keep this podcast in a New York state of mind, joining such splendid backers as... John Rogers. Ross Ireland. Stephen Hammond. Derek Heimforth. And Chihiro Yamada. Wear this show or drink it from a with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our latest Mythos Rabbit design, Bunwitch Horror. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.